lawyers today, but even if he did, that the articles do not charge impeachable offenses, which is the argument that I am making before you this evening. Justice Kirk- this is special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial from NPR News. ...because they did not allege high crime offenses against the United States. According to a Harvard historian and law professor, uh, Nicholas uh, Bowie, Curtis's constitutional arguments were persuasive to at least some senators who were no friends of President Johnson, including the co-authors of the 13th and the 14th Amendments. As Senator William Pitt Fessenden later put it, Judge Curtis gave us the law and we followed it. Senator James W. Grimes echoed Curtis's argument by refusing to accept an interpretation of high crimes and misdemeanors that changes according to the law of each senator's judgment enacted in his own bosom after the alleged commission of the offense. Though he desperately wanted to see President Johnson, who he despised, out of office, he believed that an impeachment and removal without the violation of law would be, quote, construed into approval of impeachments as part of future political machinery. According to Professor Bowie, Justice Curtis's constitutional arguments may well have contributed to the decision by at least some of the seven Republican dissidents to defy their party and vote for acquittal, which was secured by a single vote. Now, today, Professor Bowie has an article in the New York Times in which he repeats his view that, quote, impeachment requires a crime. But he now argues that the articles of impeachment do charge crimes. He is simply wrong. He is wrong because in the United States versus Hudson, a case decided almost 200, more than 200 years ago now, the United States Supreme Court ruled that federal courts have no jurisdiction to create common law crimes. Crimes are only what are in the statute book. So Professor Bowie is right that the Constitution requires a crime for impeachment, but wrong when he says that common law crimes can be used as a basis for impeaching even though they don't appear in the statute books. Now, I'm not here arguing that the current distinguished members of the Senate are in any way bound, legally bound, by Justice Curtis's arguments or those of um, Dean Dwight. But I am arguing that you should give them serious consideration, the consideration to which they are entitled by the eminence of their author and the role they may have played in the outcome of the closest precedent to the current case. Now, I want to be clear there is a nuanced difference between the arguments made by Curtis and Dwight and the argument that I am presenting here today based on my reading of history. Curtis argued that there must be a specific violation of pre-existing law. He recognized that at the time of the Constitution, there were no federal criminal statutes. Of course not. The Constitution established the national government, so we couldn't have statutes prior to the establishment of our Constitution and our nation. This argument is offered today by proponents of this impeachment on the claim that framers could not have intended to limit the criteria for impeachment to criminal-like behavior. Justice Curtis addressed that issue and that argument head-on. He pointed out that crimes such as bribery would be made criminal by the laws of the United States, which the framers of the Constitution knew would be passed. In other words, 
he anticipated that Congress would soon enact statutes punishing and defining crimes such as burglary, extortion, perjury, etc. He anticipated that, and he based his argument in part on that. The Constitution already included treason as a crime, and that was defined in the Constitution itself, and then it uh, included um, uh, other crimes. But what Justice Curtis said is that you could include laws written or unwritten, expressed or implied, by which he meant common law, which at the time of the Constitution, there were many common law crimes, and they were enforceable, even federally, until the Supreme Court, many years later, decided that common law crimes were no longer part of federal jurisdiction. So the position that I've derived from the history would include, and this is a word that has upset some people, but would include criminal-like conduct akin to treason and bribery. There need not be, in my view, conclusive evidence of a technical crime that would necessarily result in a criminal conviction. Let me explain. For example, if a president were to receive or give a bribe outside of the United States and outside of the statute of limitations, he could not technically be prosecuted in the United States for such a crime. But I believe he could be impeached for such a crime because he committed the crime of bribery, even though he couldn't technically be accused of it in the United States. That's the distinction that I think we draw. Or if a president committed extortion, perjury, or obstruction of justice, he could be charged with these crimes as impeachable offenses because these crimes, though not specified in the Constitution, are akin to treason and bribery. This would be true even if some of the technical elements, time and place, were absent. What Curtis and Dwight and I agree upon, and this is the key point in this impeachment case, please understand what I'm arguing, is that purely non-criminal conduct, including abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, are outside the range of impeachable offenses. That is the key argument I'm presenting today. This view was supported by text writers and judges close in time to the founding. William Oldwell Russell, whose 1819 treatise on criminal law was a Bible among criminal law scholars and others, defined high crimes and misdemeanors as, quote, such immoral and unlawful acts as are nearly allied and equal in guilt to a felony, and yet, owing to the absence of some technical circumstances, technical circumstances, do not fall within the definition of a felony. Similar views were expressed by some state courts. Others disagreed. Curtis considered views and those of Dwight, Russell, and others based on careful study of the text and history are not bonkers, absurdist, legal claptrap, or other demeaning epithets thrown around by partisan supporters of this impeachment. As Judge Starr pointed out, they had the weight of authority. They were accepted by the generation of founders and the generations that followed. If they are not accepted by academics today, that shows a weakness among the academics, not among the founders. These who disagree with Curtis's textual analysis are obliged, I believe, to respond with reasoned counter-interpretations, not name-calling. If Justice Curtis's arguments and those of Dean Dwight are rejected, I think then proponents of impeachment 
must offer alternative principles, alternative standards for impeachment and removal. We just heard that in 1970, Congressman Gerald Ford, who I greatly admired, said the following, in the context of an impeachment of a justice, an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considered it to be at a given moment in history, etc. You all know the quote. Congresswoman Maxine Waters recently put it more succinctly in the context of a presidential impeachment. Here's what she said. Impeachment is whatever Congress says it is. There is no law. But this lawless view would place Congress above the law. It would place Congress above the Constitution. For Congress to ignore the specific words of the Constitution itself and substitute its own judgments would be for Congress to do what it is accusing the President of doing. And no one is above the law, not the President and not Congress. This is precisely the kind of view expressly rejected by the framers, who feared having a President serve at the pleasure of the legislature, and it is precisely the view rejected by Senator James Grimes when he refused to accept an interpretation of high crimes and misdemeanors that would change according to the law of each senator's judgment enacted in his own bosom. The Constitution requires, in the words of Gouverneur Morris, that the criteria for impeachment must be enumerated and defined. Those who advocate impeachment today are obliged to demonstrate how the criteria accepted by the House in this case are enumerated and defined in the Constitution. The compelling textual analysis provided by Justice Curtis is confirmed by the debate in the Constitutional Convention, by the Federalist Papers, by the writings of William Blackstone, and I believe by the writings of Alexander Hamilton, which were heavily relied on by lawyers at the time of the Constitution's adoption. There were, at the time of the Constitution's adoption, two great debates that went on. And it's very important to understand the distinction between these two great debates. The first, hard to imagine today, but the first was, should there be any power to impeach a president at all? And there were several members of the founding generation and of the framers of the Constitution who said no, who said no, a president shouldn't be allowed to be impeached. The second, and the second is very, very important in our consideration today, is if a president is to be subject to impeachment, what should the criteria be? These are very different issues, and they are often erroneously conflated. Let's begin with the first debate. During the broad debate about whether a president should be subject to impeachment, proponents of impeachment used vague and open-ended terms such as unfit, obnoxious, corrupt, misconduct, misbehavior, negligence, malpractice, perfidy, treachery, incapacity, peculation, and maladministration. They worry that a president might, quote, pervert his administration into a scheme of speculation and oppression, that he might be corrupted by foreign influence, and yes, this is important, that he might have great opportunities of abusing his power. Those were the concerns that led the framers to decide that a president must be subject to impeachment. But not a single one of the framers 
suggested that these general fears justifying the need for an impeachment and removal mechanism should automatically be accepted as a specific criterion for impeachment. Far from it, as Governor Morris aptly put it, corruption and some other offenses ought to be impeachable. But the cases ought to be enumerated and defined. The great fallacy of many contemporary scholars and pundits, and with due respect, members of the House of Representatives, is that they fail to understand the critical distinction between the broad reasons for needing an impeachment mechanism and the carefully enumerated and defined criteria that should authorize the deployment of this powerful weapon. Let me give you a hypothetical example that might have faced Congress or certainly will face Congress. Uh, let's assume that there is a debate over regulating the content of social media, whether we should have regulations or criminal civil regulations over Twitter, Facebook, etc. In the debate over regulating the social media, proponents of regulation might well cite broad dangers, such as false information, inappropriate content, hate speech. Those are good reasons for having regulation. But when it came to enumerating and defining what should be prohibited, such broad dangers would have to be balanced against other important policies. And the resulting legislation would be much narrower and more carefully defined than the broad dangers that necessitated some regulation. The framers understood and acted on this difference, but I'm afraid that many scholars and others and members of Congress fail to see this distinction. And they cite some of the fears that led to the need for impeachment mechanism. They cite them as the criteria themselves. That is a deep fallacy. And it's crucially important that the distinction be sharply drawn between arguments made in favor of impeaching and the criteria then decided upon to justify the impeachment specifically of a president. The framers understood this, and so they got down to the difficult business of enumerating and defining precisely which offenses among the many that they feared a president might commit should be impeachable, as distinguished from those left to the voters to evaluate. Some framers, such as Roger Sherman, wanted the president to be removable by the national legislature at its pleasure, much like the British prime minister can be removed by a simple vote of no confidence by parliament. That view was rejected. Benjamin Franklin opposed decidedly the making of the executive, quote, the mere creature of the legislature. Gouverneur Morris was against the dependence of the executive on the legislature, considering the legislature, you will pardon me quoting this, a great danger to be apprehended. I don't agree with that. James Madison expressed concerns about the president being improperly dependent on the legislature. Others worried about a feeble executive. Hearing these and other arguments against turning the new republic into a parliamentary democracy in which the legislature had the power to remove the president, the framers set out to strike the appropriate balance between the broad concerns that led them to vote for a provision authorizing the impeachment of the president and the need for specific criteria not subject to legislative abuse or overuse. Among the criteria proposed were malpractice, neglect of duty, malconduct, neglect in the ex execution of office, and, and this word we'll come back to talk about, 
maladministration. It was a response to that last term, a term used in Britain as a criteria for impeachment, that Madison responded, so vague a term will be equivalent to a tenure during the pleasure of the Senate. Upon hearing Madison's objections, Colonel Mason withdrew maladministration and substituted other high crimes and misdemeanors. Had a delegate proposed inclusion of abuse of power or obstruction of Congress as enumerated and defined criteria for impeachment, history strongly suggests that Madison would have similarly opposed it and it would have been rejected. I will come back to that argument a little later on when I talk specifically about abuse of power. Indeed, Madison worried that a partisan legislature could even misuse the word misdemeanor to include a broad array of non-crimes, so he proposed moving the trial to the nonpartisan Supreme Court. The proposal was rejected. Now, this does not mean, as some have suggested, that Madison suddenly changed his mind and favored such misuse to expand the meaning of misdemeanor to include broad terms like misbehavior. No. It only meant that he feared it. He feared that the word misdemeanor could be abused. His fear has proven to be prescient by the misuse of that term, high crimes and misdemeanors, by the House in this case. Now, the best evidence that the broad concerns cited by the framers to justify impeachment were not automatically accepted as criteria justifying impeachment is the manner by which the word incapacity, focus on that word, please, incapacity was treated. Madison and others focused heavily on the problem of what happens if a president becomes incapacitated. Certainly a president who's incapacitated should not be allowed to continue to preside over this great country. And everyone seemed to agree that the possibility of presidential incapacity is a good and powerful reason for having an impeachment provision. But when it came time to establishing criteria for actually removing a president, incapacity was not included. Why not? Presumably because it was too vague and subjective a term. And when we had an incapacitated president, in the end of the Woodrow Wilson second term, he was not impeached and removed. A constitutional amendment with carefully drawn procedural safeguards against abuse was required to remedy the daunting problem of a president who was deemed incapacitated. Now, another reason why incapacitation was not included among impeachable offenses because it's not criminal. It's not a crime to be incapacitated. It's not akin to treason. It's not akin to bribery. And it's not a high crime and misdemeanor. The framers believe that impeachable offenses must be criminal in nature and akin to the most serious crimes. Incapacity simply did not fit into this category. Nothing criminal about it. So the Constitution had to be amended to include a different category of non-criminal behavior that warranted removal. I urge you to consider seriously that important part of the history of the adoption of our Constitution. I think that Blackstone and Hamilton also support this view. There's no, no disagreement over the conclusion that the words treason, bribery, or other high crimes, those words require criminal behavior. The debate is only over the words and misdemeanors. The framers of the Constitution 
were fully cognizant of the fact that the word misdemeanor was a species of crime. The book that was most often deemed authoritative was written by William Blackstone in Great Britain. And here is what he says about this in the version that was available to the framers. A crime or misdemeanor is an act committed or omitted in violation of a public law, either forbidding or commanding it. The general definition comprehends both crimes and misdemeanors, which properly speaking are mere synonymous terms. Mere synonymous terms. He then went on, though, in common usage, the word crimes is made to denote such offenses are of a deeper and more audacious die, while smaller faults and omissions of less consequence are comprised under the gentler name of misdemeanors only. Interestingly, though, he pointed out that misdemeanors were not always so gentle. There was a category called capital misdemeanors, where if you stole somebody's pig or other fowl, you could be sentenced to death, but it's only for a misdemeanor. Don't worry. It's not for a felony, but there were misdemeanors that were capital in nature. Moreover, Blackstone wrote that parliamentary impeachment, quote, is a prosecution, a prosecution of already known and established law presented to the most high and supreme court of criminal jurisdiction, analogous to this great court. He observed that a commoner can be impeached but only for high misdemeanors. A peer may be impeached for any crime, any crime. This certainly suggests that Blackstone deemed high misdemeanors to be a species of crime. Hamilton is a little less clear in this issue, and not surprisingly, because he was writing in Federalist Number 65, he was writing not to define what the criteria for impeachment were, he was writing primarily in defense of the Constitution as written, and less to define its provisions. But he certainly cannot be cited in favor of criteria such as abuse of power or obstruction of Congress nor of impeachment voted along party lines. He warned that the greatest danger, these were his words, the greatest danger is that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. In, in addition to using the criminal terms innocence or guilt, Hamilton also referred to, quote, prosecution and sentence. He cited the constitutional provisions that states that the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to a criminal trial as a reason for not having the president tried before the Supreme Court. He feared a double prosecution, a variation of double jeopardy, before the same judiciary. These points all sound in criminal terms. But advocates of a broad, open-ended, non-criminal interpretation of high crimes and misdemeanors insist that Hamilton is on their side. And they cite the following words regarding the court of impeachment. And I think I've heard these words quoted more than any other words in support of a broad view of impeachment. And they are misunderstood. Here's what he said when describing the court of impeachment. He said, the subjects of its jurisdiction, those are important words, the subjects of its jurisdiction, by which he meant treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, the subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself. 
Those are Hamilton's words. They're often misunderstood as suggesting that the criteria authorizing impeachment include the misconduct of public men or the abuse or violation of some public trust. That is a misreading. These words were used to characterize the constitutional criteria that are the subject of the jurisdiction of the court of impeachment, namely treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Those specified crimes are political in nature. They are the crimes that involve the misconduct of public men and the abuse of violation of some public trust. Hamilton was not expanding the specified criteria to include as independent grounds for impeachment misconduct, abuse, or violation. If anything, he was contracting them to require, in addition to proof of the specified crimes, also proof that the crime must be of a political nature. This would exclude President Clinton's private non-political crime. In fact, and this is interesting, Hamilton's view was cited by Clinton's advocates as contracting, not expanding, the meaning of high crimes. Today, some of these same advocates, you look at the same words and cite them as expanding its meaning. Clinton was accused of a crime, perjury. And so the issue in his case was not whether the Constitution required a crime for impeachment. Instead, the issue was whether Clinton's alleged crime could be classified as a high crime in light of its personal nature. During the Clinton impeachment, I stated in an interview that I did not think that a technical crime was required, but that I did think that abusing trust could be considered. I said that. At that time, I had not done the extensive research on that issue because it was irrelevant to the Clinton case, and I was not fully aware of the compelling counter-arguments. So I simply accepted the academic consensus on an issue that was not on the front burner at the time. But because this impeachment directly raises the issue of whether criminal behavior is required, I have gone back and read all the relevant historical material as nonpartisan academics should always do and have now concluded that the framers did intend to limit the criteria for impeachment to criminal type acts akin to treason, bribery, and they certainly did not intend to extend it to vague and open-ended and non-criminal accusations such as abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. I published this academic conclusion well before I was asked to present the arguments to the Senate in this case. My switch in attitude, purely academic, purely nonpartisan. Nor am I the only participant in this proceeding who has changed his mind. Several members of Congress, several senators, expressed different views regarding the criteria for impeachment when the subject was President Clinton than they do now. When the President was Clinton, my colleague and friend, Professor Lawrence Tribe, who is advising Speaker Pelosi now, wrote that a sitting President could not be charged with a crime. Now he's changed his mind. That's what academics do and should do based on new information. If there are reasonable doubts about the intended meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors, senators might consider resolving these doubts by reference to a legal concept known as lenity. Lenity goes back to hundreds of years before the founding of our country and was a concept in Great Britain relied upon by many of our own justices and judges over the years. It was well known to the legal members of the founding generation. 
It required that in construing a criminal statute that is capable of more than one reasonable interpretation, the interpretation that favors the defendant should be selected unless it conflicts with the intent of the statute. It has been applied by Chief Justice Marshall, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Frankfurter, Felix Frankfurter, Justice Antonin Scalia, and others. Now, applying that rule to the interpretation of high crimes and misdemeanors would require that these words be construed narrowly to require criminal-like conduct akin to treason and bribery rather than broadly to encompass abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. In other words, if senators are in doubt about the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors, the rule of lenity should incline them toward accepting a narrower rather than a broad interpretation, a view that rejects abuse of power and obstruction of Congress as within the constitutional criteria. Now, even if the rule of lenity is not technically applicable to impeachment, that's a question, certainly the policies underlying that rule are worthy and deserving of consideration as guides to constitutional interpretation. Now, here I'm making, I think, a very important point. Even if the Senate were to conclude that a technical crime is not required for impeachment, the critical question remains, and it's the question I now want to address myself to, do abuse of power and obstruction of Congress constitute impeachable offenses? The relevant history answers that question clearly in the negative. Each of these charges suffers from the vice of being, quote, so vague a term that they will be equivalent of tenure at the pleasure of the Senate, to quote again the father of our Constitution. Abuse of power is an accusation easily leveled by political opponents against controversial presidents. In our long history, many presidents have been accused of abusing their power. I will now give you a list of presidents who in our history have been accused of abusing their power, who would be subject to impeachment under the House manager's view of the Constitution. George Washington, refusal to turn over documents.